we've reached tonight the last two commandments of the Decalogue, question 143 of the larger catechism asks the question, which is the ninth commandment? The answer is, the ninth commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now, as with the other commandments, this commandment too, in the catechism's discussion of it, commences with an exposition of the positive duties that are required. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness? The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good neighbor as well as our own. You see then that the commandment is above all concerned with truth. I think though that uh, the commandment uh, has an even wider scope than the preserving of truth between man and his neighbor inasmuch as Adam was required to keep all ten of the commandments before the fall and inasmuch as um, there were only two people in the whole world before the fall and indeed even before uh, God created Eve Adam was still required to keep all ten commandments and so there was a truth which Adam was required to preserve um, even before Eve was uh, created. Uh, and, of course, uh, that truth was the truthful impression which Adam had received of his God and of the universe in which God had put him. Adam was to walk truthfully before his God and in God's universe. And I believe that we can say that Adam was essentially to keep the Ten Commandments when uh, God created him and put him in the garden uh, to show him all the things that God had made to see what man would call them. And you recall, whatever man called the animals that was to be their name. Now, I think we need to see that that's quite an important point. As uh, man looked at the animals that God had made, he was to understand them properly and to give a truthful name to them, a name which would uh, accurately describe uh, the nature of whatever animal that he was looking at. And I think by implication we can also assume that he would have given names, truthful names, to the plants. After all, God created man, you recall, to subjugate the earth and the sea and the sky and everything in them, including, of course, the animals of the earth and the plants on the earth. And so we need to see that at the beginning of Adam's scientific investigations uh, and indeed his artistic portrayals uh, of what he saw he was to be truthful that is to keep the uh, ninth commandment and not to bear false witness as to their nature the second thing that I think we need to see from Ephesians chapter 3 uh, is the meaning of Paul's statement there 
Blessed is the Lord uh, and Father of our Lord. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom uh, the whole family uh, on earth receives its name. That would then mean that every name that each one of us has has received its name, not so much from the father or mother or the school. Uh, who, who gave us our name or the school uh, friends that we had who gave us our nickname but behind them that we receive our name uh, from Almighty God via our parents who give us that name that we receive our nickname at school from Almighty God via the people who give us that nickname and indeed there are many cultures uh, that um, give people nicknames and the nickname is usually extremely um, descriptive of uh, the person who receives that name I know when my father was a uh, uh, manager of a factory at one stage uh, many of the uh, black workers there uh, gave him the nickname of Uponi, Uponi which means the pony this is because my dad was always rushing around like a little horse, backwards and forwards. And so they called him the pony. And um, indeed, uh, often even in Western society, nicknames have this quality of characterizing the person who's given the name. But the point I want to leave with you at this stage is that it's really Almighty God working through the parents giving a name to their child. It's really Almighty God working through the schoolmates or the employees who give a nickname to the employer uh, so that when we give names to people uh, seeing it really is God using us to give them that name we need to be accurate in the name that we're giving. And by extension when we give names to plants and animals as Adam did in the Garden of Eden we need to bear in mind it is God giving those creatures names through our agency uh, through utilizing our ability as those created in the image of God with ourselves uh, some creative or imaginative power as far as giving names to people is concerned now not only then are we to realize that it is God working through us giving names to other people and to plants and animals uh, but that we are required to give an accurate description of these other people, plants and animals that we are looking at, a truthful description, and this is the point I want to make now, what, regardless as to whether we communicate our impressions of people, animals and plants to other people or not. In other words, even if you or I were to live in a cave and never to see another human being in our life, we should still give an accurate name to the plants, the animals uh, which we see while living in the cave, even if we never talk to anyone until we die. Because even if we never talk to any other person till we die, we should be talking to God, and we would be talking to God if we were a child of God. And so we need to be able to tell God what the name is and God understands because after all it was God who worked in us to discover a suitable name to give to those things which in our prayers we would be telling God about so 
They need to see that all truth is God's truth and that when we act and give names to other people or things, we act as God's agents. Now, it's not just names that we are to be accurate about when giving names to people or to plants or to animals or stars or whatever else it is, but after giving the thing a name, when we proceed to describe that thing, we still need to be accurate. Um, when Adam said, you are a giraffe, you are a hippopotamus, you are an elephant, uh, it was not just a matter of giving an appropriate name to the creature, but uh, Adam would, from that point, proceed to describe the uh, rhinoceros, the horn of the rhinoceros, its length, the thickness of its skin, and so forth. Uh, when he gave the name elephant to that creature, it would be accompanied with a description of the elephant, uh, its tusks, the shape of its ear, its tail, and so forth. And so you see, really, this is essentially what scientists are doing. It's also what artists are doing. Because what an artist does, uh, in a non-clinical way, he attempts to summarize the gist of what he has seen and present it in a dramatic way which will leave a permanent impression uh, with the one who beholds that art. And so we must strive, of course, to be accurate. And talking about the elephant, you all know the poem of the six men of Hindustan and uh, six blind men of Hindustan uh, and they encountered an elephant, these men, and not being able to see, they couldn't see the elephant. And uh, however they could feel it. And one of them put out his hand and he felt the ear of the elephant. And he says, well, it's quite clear to any man whatever else the elephant is, it's something like a fan, because the ear of the elephant uh, felt as if it were a fan. However, the second man of Hindustan didn't feel the ear, he felt the, the tusk of the elephant, and he says, no, you're wrong. It's not like a fan at all, it's like a spear. And the third man of Hindustan uh, got hold of the tail of the elephant, and he says, no, you're both wrong again. It is neither like a fan, nor is an elephant like a, like a spear, it's like a rope. And then the fourth man of Hindustan uh, somehow groped and got his hands and arms round the foot of the elephant, and he says, no, all of you are wrong. Whatever the elephant is, it's neither like a fan, nor like a spear, nor like a rope, it's obviously like a tree, a tree trunk. And then the fifth man of Hindustan uh, banged into the side of the elephant and he says, well, it's clear to me that the elephant is like a wall. And then there was the sixth man of Hindustan uh, who touched the trunk of the elephant and he says, for goodness sake, <laughs> an elephant is very like a snake. Now, the moral of the story is, which one of the six was right? Well, they were all partially right, weren't they? But none of them was wholly right, you see? And so, as we seek to keep the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness about thy neighbor, we've got to strive to be accurate, not just in giving an accurate description of that part of the thing, or the universe, which we come into contact with, but what is so much more difficult, striving to give an accurate description 
of the totality of the universe, especially when we communicate what we have learned to our fellow man, so that we not be found guilty of bearing false witness, uh, partial truth, um, which of course is inaccurate in itself. Well now let us proceed further. The duties required in the ninth commandment then are the preserving and the promoting of truth between man and man. I often wonder exactly what it was that Adam said to Eve about the forbiddenness of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before the fall. But you will have noted that the Bible does not record that God directly revealed this prohibition to Eve, though he might have done so, but whether he did or whether he didn't, the Bible doesn't record it, in the way in which God did indeed reveal it to Adam, which of course the Bible does record. Assuming then that God did not directly tell Eve before she fell exactly what he did tell Adam about staying away from the fruit of the forbidden tree, we can well wonder exactly what it was that uh, Adam told Eve about the fruit of that tree. Because what God had actually said to Adam, stated in the Bible, is of course, uh, you may not in any way uh, eat of the fruit of the tree, But when Eve tells the serpent what she understood God to have said, she doesn't quite say that. She said, God has said, and that may mean my husband has told me that God has said, but what, the, what Eve at any rate uh, told Satan was, God has said that we may not uh, eat of the fruit of the tree, neither may we touch it. Now, God had not said to Adam that they might not touch the tree. Uh, and yet, this is what Eve does say to Satan that God had also said. You see, she didn't quite tell Satan exactly what God had told Adam about this matter. And uh, further on, uh, God had told Adam very clearly the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And what Eve told the serpent was, the day that we eat the fruit of this tree, we shall die. Not we shall surely die. So the word surely was omitted. Well, now someone can say, ah, oh, well, don't let's be picky unish. Uh, don't let's uh, uh, be so uh, finicky about it. I mean, Eve did more or less tell the snake exactly what God had told Adam. But you see, that's the whole point of the story of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We are not to be more or less accurate in giving an account of what someone told us. We are to be absolutely accurate. And then you remember how um, Satan said, Oh no, you shall not surely die. When we start to slide from accuracy in relating things that have happened to other people but we are not absolutely accurate but just more or less accurate 
Uh, this one thing leads to another until in the end someone completely misunderstands what we've said. Now, uh, quite recently, um, I made a, a remark to someone um, to this effect. Uh, is, we were discussing theology, and a discussion arose in my presence as to whether um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same as conversion. And uh, I indicated, no, I thought there was a difference. Perhaps I should have said more than that at the time. But a little later, uh, one of the persons to whom I was speaking uh, indicated, ah, uh, oh, well, uh, Dr. Lee, um, you believe in a second blessing, don't you? And, of course, I do not believe in that sense. But, you see, perhaps through me not having taken enough time to explain that even though uh, I am inclined to doubt that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is exactly the same as conversion, um, and then having gone on to explain exactly what I do think it is, uh, one of the persons to whom I was speaking assumed, and uh, perhaps um, not altogether uh, inaccurately on the basis of me not having said enough, that I was in fact uh, advocating some kind of second blessing which I'm certainly not now that's how misunderstandings often start between people uh, it, it's so important for us to take the time to explain exactly what we mean and uh, often we forget that the person we're speaking to uh, really is not standing in our shoes and um, has not had the same experiences that we've had and doesn't always attach the same meaning to the words that we are using in talking to them and we really need to be careful about assuming that they will understand the word we are speaking to them with in the same meaning that we attach to it. A very simple example of this, of course, will be the statement that Brezhnev is a man of peace. Well, yes, but what, and uh, what is he, uh, he Brezhnev wants peace. A piece of Poland, and a piece of Czechoslovakia, and a piece of Afghanistan. You see, the word peace <laughs> needs defining. <coughs> and uh, a little less light-heartedly, what we should know in dealing with communists, now we're into the subject, is that when a communist speaks of the need for peaceful coexistence with the West, he means something quite different to what a Westerner means. When a Westerner says, we've got to have peaceful coexistence, what that Westerner means is, let's not destroy one another in a thermonuclear war. Then everybody's a loser. That's what he means. But when he says to a, a, a communist, um, let's have peaceful coexistence the communist either misunderstands what the westerner is saying because the communist when he says yes let's indeed have peaceful coexistence means himself really and sincerely and perhaps does not want the westerner to understand what the communist means yes let's have peaceful coexistence that is you tell your Western government to quit rearming itself, 
and to start disarming itself so that my government will then be able after not disarming itself and continuing to rearm itself to say to your government if you don't surrender to us which we expect you will do now that we are much stronger than you we are going to force you at the power of the bayonet or the atomic bomb to surrender uh, of course we don't think that we'll have to throw the bomb at you because you'll have weakened yourself so much by that time that it would be suicide for you to resist us and so we are men of peace we believe in peaceful coexistence yes but by peaceful coexistence we mean that the West must accept once and for all that Western civilization is finished that the future belongs to communism worldwide that Westerners cannot resist the advance of communism uh, into the West and that what the West must do now is accept this fact without trying to resist and if the West does accept this fact without trying to resist well then we'll have peaceful coexistence because nobody is going to throw the bomb at anybody the whole world will accept the fact that it will live first under socialism and after that under communism so you see we need to define our words and if you look at the World Council of Churches the ecumenical movement you will see how words are uh, misused all the time of course it's true in the book of Acts that uh, at Thessalonica it was reported of the early Christian these men are turning the world upside down that is to say they have filled Thessalonica with their doctrine and everybody is talking about it but it did not mean that the Christians uh, had um, armed themselves with swords and bows and arrows and were walking through the streets in uh, insurrection turning Thessalonica upside down but when you get into the ecumenical movement today when they speak of turning the world upside down in revolution theology they mean insurrection indeed the secretary general of the world council of churches Philip Potter said that resurrection means insurrection so you say you believe in resurrection yes World Council of Churches too says that it believes in resurrection but when you say you believe in resurrection you mean that just as Jesus rose up from the dead so too on the last day all people will rise from the dead and those who believed in Jesus will rise unto life eternal that's what you mean um, but when Mr. Potter uh, speaks of resurrection and when he says I believe in the resurrection he means as he tells insurrection that is armed revolt of the have-nots against the haves in today's world so you see then the importance of defining terms and uh, if we don't do this and if we use words in conversation as weapons to mislead the person uh, to whom we are speaking we uh, try to uh, con gullible people into thinking that um, we would really benefit whereas in actual fact we're trying to rip them off even though the words that we use to do it we are breaking this commandment and in that way bearing false witness against them so then the ninth commandment requires the preserving and the promoting of truth between man and man and requires the good name of our neighbor 
as well as our own. If you hear your neighbor being slandered by someone else, it really is your duty to stand up and to clear his name. Notice, though, that the catechism goes on to say that if we hear someone else slandering our good name, as much as we have the power, it is our duty not to throw mud back at that person, but to stand up and to do what we can to clear our own good name. Now, of course, this is not always an easy thing to do, because usually, by the time uh, slanders against you get back to you, uh, it's already been passed on to a number of people, uh, the full number of which you are unable to identify. And so how are you going to track this down? There are occasions, I believe, when the best thing to do when slandered is just to keep quiet. Remember when the high priest <coughs> was slandering the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Well, don't you have anything to say? We read, Jesus answered not a word. Perhaps you've been in a situation from time to time, and I certainly have, where people challenge you and say, Go on, we'll give you a chance, speak up, let's hear what you have to say. And you know that whatever you say, they're, they're already so prejudiced, so whatever you say, they will not quote you fairly on what you say. They'll quote half of what you say and give it a few twists. And uh, then they'll use that as a further club to beat you over the head. I have friends who say it's impossible for a journalist ever to get into heaven because these people do not know how to take the truth in their, tell the truth in their newspaper reporting. Well, I have met one or two honest journalists, but I must honestly say that most journalists that I've met and have to do with are, are, are um, outrageous transgressors of the Ninth Commandment. And uh, it's very unusual uh, when I give press interviews to anyone <laughs> to uh, read a report of that interview in the paper later which is not inaccurate in some or other respect. And uh, sometimes when uh, the journalists have got their knife into you, uh, the unwisest thing you could possibly do is to grant them an interview. And they say, well, we just want, you know, to get set the record straight. We, we recognize that the other paper that said this thing about you misunderstands you. Could you please tell us the way it really is and elaborate? Don't fall into the trap and elaborate. If you do, another report will appear about you, and it'll make you look worse than the first time. Until in the end, it's, um, it's just terrible. Uh, or as uh, preachers will often tell you, if you're a preacher, if a journalist comes towards you, and wants to interview you, run a mile. Run a mile. Because as a, a whole, with wonderful exceptions, journalists do not like preachers and try to make them look ridiculous and present them in the worst light. Now, of course, that is so in some countries of the world, much more than it is in other countries of the world, so you have to feel your way. But what I'm saying is sometimes silence is the best thing that you can do when you're slandered. Because, you see, when Jesus looked at that kangaroo court uh, under the chairmanship of Caiaphas, he realized that whatever he said, they'd already decided to, uh, to give him a bad name and to hang him. Whatever Jesus had said, whatever explanation he'd given, would really just have provided more usable ammunition, which they could twist against him and make it look still worse. And so he clammed up and said not a word. However, on other situations where we assess that we do have the opportunity 
to give an explanation of what we meant and that people are sufficiently unprejudiced to listen to what we said uh, after we've been slandered, then we should, I believe, speak up and do what we can to protect our own good name as indeed we would the good name of our neighbor who is misrepresented. We are also to appear and to stand for the truth, to appear and to stand for the truth. I was speaking to a very famous minister very recently and this person told me that one of the saddest experiences that he has had, uh, not in New Zealand but elsewhere, is sitting in church courts, in presbyteries, where the truth or the falsehood of an allegation is being determined uh, for him to stand up and say exactly what happened and other people whom he could have expected to have stood up and take a righteous stand on an unpopular issue have said nothing out of cowardice of not wanting to lose face in the opinion of uh, the majority of people in the presbytery as they assess the situation and I've had the same experience many times it's a matter of great sadness to see men of God or I should say ministers <laughs> for God to say whether those ministers are men of God but anyway those whom you really would want to consider to be men of God and who certainly are ministers in church courts uh, when the crunch is really on where the rubber meets the road when they should speak up in defense of the truth just to say nothing and in that way for insufficient evidence to be forthcoming to do what really needs to be done in that situation now that is a breach of the ninth commandment that is bearing false testimony against your neighbor by being silent when you should speak up uh, false testimony is rendered so we need to be prepared to appear and to stand for the truth perhaps you've been involved in a car smash and you're the innocent party but fortunately you see a couple of witnesses standing on the on the pavement and you leap out of your car and you say to the witnesses you saw that didn't you and they said no I saw nothing I saw nothing what he's really saying is I don't want to waste my time going to court to have to tell them what I saw namely that you are in the right you see well now that attitude of so-called witnesses I saw nothing and in certain situations uh, people that see crimes being committed don't want to get involved perhaps they fear victimization by the criminal after they give their testimony against the criminal if that should not be sufficient to convict the criminal or if his sentence is short when he gets out he will hunt them down whatever the reason uh, it is a transgression of the ninth commandment for us not to be prepared to appear and to stand up for the truth and to be counted we're also required to speak the truth from the heart to do it sincerely freely clearly and fully don't stand up and tell someone well you know it's true the Bible does say there's no God because that's a partial truth the full truth is the Bible says the fool hath said in his heart there is no God and when we give part of the truth but not all of it well then of course um, that becomes a falsehood doesn't it 
We are to speak the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. But perhaps more importantly than that, thou shalt not bear false witness also means we should have a charitable esteem of our neighbors. We should think charitably about our neighbors. If we see uh, one of them do something that uh, is unwise, we should not construe what we see in the worst possible light. For example, if we see um, a man walk into the apartment uh, of an unmarried married girl at 10 p.m., and then walk out again at 10.30, and then we see another man walk into that apartment at 11 o'clock and walk out at 11.30, just because we don't like that person, or even because some neighbor may have told us that that woman across the street is a prostitute should not make us say, aha, there's the proof of it. No, it may be that this woman's uh, um, fridge broke down and the 10 o'clock visitor was a repairman of the fridge, and that the 11 o'clock visitor um, could well have been um, someone else coming in there uh, selling uh, shampoo powder f uh, for her dog. I mean, who knows? Uh, don't lightly assume something uncharitable about a person on such insufficient grounds. Make the charitable assumption as long as you can until... You have to admit that the negative testimony is overwhelming. Certainly, though, it would be good if uh, this lady across the street has the habit of receiving these salesmen for purpose of demonstrations at that hour of night, that at an appropriate time one might want to suggest to her that uh, this action could be misconstrued and it may be wiser for her to have these demonstrations in her flat at more appropriate times. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor also means that we should love, desire, and rejoice in their good name. In other words, not gossip, not go around poisoning other people against uh, folks that we know, uh, but rejoicing in their good name, doing what we can to guard their good name. And when we do detect that our neighbors indeed do have an infirmity, that we should be sorry to hear it and that we should want to cover that infirmity or weakness. Now I'd like to say a little about covering the infirmity of others. Of course when the catechism here says that we should want to cover the infirmity of others it doesn't mean cover up, deny it, uh, seek to suppress the evidence uh, that uh, they really have uh, committed indiscretions. But it rather means that when we see they have an infirmity, especially if it's a minor infirmity, we should cover that infirmity, not cover it up, but cover the infirmity with love, for love shall cover a multitude. In other words, see that infirmity once it has been clearly established in perspective. Weigh it against all the other excellent qualities in the person concerned. And uh, not magnify that minor infirmity so as to make that person appear to be a terrible person in our own eyes or in the eyes of other people with whom we may have a legitimate need uh, to discuss this matter. Someone asked me a question very recently about the circumstances of a divorce which a very famous Christian person had 
uh, undergone. And I was very reluctant, you know, to disclose what I... Because I didn't know all the facts, but what I did know uh, could be construed as, I suppose, of, um, of being... Well, of uh, lending certain, a certain degree of weight to rumors that are circulating about this famous person. So, uh, I trust I was pleasing to the Lord. I said, well, I don't know very much, but I'll tell you what I do know, which I did, and then I hastened to add at the end that um, I thought one would need to be very, very careful to weigh the cogency of all of these things and not to make assumptions that wouldn't necessarily follow and to remember that this famous person under discussion was a very excellent person in many other ways. So I'm not saying it's always easy to know what to say about ourselves or others, but I'm saying that especially when we feel we've got to say some things that are not altogether f flattering or to another man's credit, <clears throat> perhaps need to pray quite a bit before making a reply at all. And when we do, to qualify very clearly that um, even if there is an infirmity in another person, all of us should want to cover that infirmity, not cover it up, but cover it uh, with love in the light of the other person's excellent qualities. We should also freely acknowledge the gifts and graces of others. I've always uh, thought for some time past, particularly in dealing with people when I learn that they don't like me, and especially in dealing with people whom I learn that they are going around slandering me, I've thought, well, Lord, I'll leave this uh, vindication of my name for what it's worth to you yourself. Vengeance is mine. I shall replace, say the Lord. But in the meantime... What should I say about those people that are going around and saying these things about me, or more usually about people close to me whom I have a high regard of? Um, how should I handle it if people ask me what do I think of the character or the ability of the person about whom it is being alleged that they are slandering? And I think that uh, the way to handle it is to say, well, I'm very sorry to hear these reports that they are slandering me or others if these reports be true. However, let me say that one must remember that whether they are doing so or not, that uh, these people concerned do have um, gifts and graces which we need to recognize. I know that's not easy, particularly if you're the person who's being slandered, but I believe that this is what the Lord God really does require us to do in that kind of a situation. And of course we should rise up and defend their innocency. Two, we must be very ready to receive a good report about people. Uh, if we've received a lot of bad reports about a certain person, then someone said, have you heard the latest about so-and-so? And you say, yeah, don't tell me, let me guess. Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, this person helped an old lady across the road yesterday. You can't believe it, because everything you've been hearing about them recently is negative. Our catechism says we should be ready to receive that good report. And we should be grateful to the person bringing us that report so that it enables us to see that this other person that we'd almost written off does, after all, have one or two redeeming features. And then we remember that we ourselves are sinners and only live by grace, you see. Then we should be unwilling to admit an evil report. Now, that doesn't mean we should deny 
the truth of an evil report once uh, we are convinced that that report is accurate doesn't mean that at all I know that there are some firms that teach the higher-ups to cover up and to lie uh, about their underling employees under them and that even if the overseer knows that someone working under him has done something morally wrong that for some strange reason that I can't fathom it's the company policy or the policy of government departments sometimes to try to shield and to protect one another and to cover up in the bad sense of the word and in fact to lie to the public uh, and to defend the person that works under them in their department while knowing all the time that that person is guilty no this may be the policy of some modern businesses and government departments but this is not what the catechism is advocating at all it's rather something else unwillingness to admit an evil report means before the evil report before the before the evilness uh, that is reported to us has been absolutely undeniably substantiated while we are still in the stages of allegations of evil being made which have not yet clearly been established during that stage we should really be unwilling to admit that is to lend too much credence to unsubstantiated um, unfavorable rumors about other people we should wish when we hear these rumors that they might not be true but once it's clearly established as a fact of course then we are going to have to accept the factuality of what we have heard even if the person about whom these reports have been made are people very very close and near and dear to us we should also, says the Catechism, discourage talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. Puts all three of them in the same breath. Now, a talebearer is a person that runs around from place to place. Have you heard the latest about Hyacinth? She was at Primrose's party, and then so and so came over, and he did this, and she did this, and what do you think? It doesn't look right to me, does it? And then off to the next person telling the same story carrying this tale and bearing it over and over again and you see each time as this tale is retold the person tells it again with more drama than the last time and uh, uh, usually um, adds a, a few details to it that weren't in the last report and then the person who listened to it uh, was only half listening and they go and tell it to someone else and then in the end you've got a tale or a report that's going around that you can hardly recognize you know the old party game of rumors when you have about 50 people in a room sitting on chairs and uh, the first person uh, on the first chair writes three sentences uh, on a piece of paper and then he leans over into the ear of the person next to him and he reads from this piece of paper into their ear exactly what the piece of paper says then he folds it up and he puts the piece of paper in his pocket and then number two tells number three and number three number four and so on until you go around to number fifty and then everybody in the room listens and number fifty has got to say what he thinks he heard number forty nine tell him and usually you can hardly recognize uh, 
number 50's version of what number one actually said whose note is then opened up unfolded and read so that it can be clear exactly how it started now it's awful sad that this sort of thing happens daily out there in the world it's extremely sad when Christians lend their own good name to this kind of behavior whether they realize it or not so then we must discourage tail-bearing and we should also discourage slanderers and flatterers you say well a slanderer is a person who goes around saying evil unnice things about people and that's right but a flatterer is one who goes around saying nice things about people why should we discourage people going around and saying nice things about people because a flatterer when he says nice things about people doesn't believe it and he knows that it isn't true in other words he butters people up to try and get something out of them and we need to beware of flattery there are some people deceitful people who are masters of flattery they've developed it to a fine art and they will always find something in someone that they hope to use or to break or to destroy uh, and to try to flatter them and have you noticed when people come to you and look you in the eyes and they say to you oh Mr. So-and-so I am just so grateful for what you did for me yesterday immediately if you've been a little hostile against that person you begin to drop your guard you see and then you begin to eat it up they may well in the end bring you to that point of disarmament when they will be able to smash you either physically or in a more subtle way and to destroy you so beware of flatterers just as you would beware of slanderers we must also have love and care of our own name and defend it when need requires we must keep all promises that we have made which are lawful now what do you do if you've made a promise that's unlawful for example if you make a promise to me tonight to uh, to go off and murder someone tomorrow night that insulted me last night and then when you get home the Holy Spirit says to you uh, you can't keep that promise it's sinful well of course what you've got to do is to break that promise the promises that bind us are only such promises as do not go against the commandments of God I think having resolved to break that promise you then come back and you say to me I, I'm, I'm sorry Mr. Lee I cannot go ahead with my arrangement to do the thing that I told you yesterday I would do tomorrow night because I now see it as evil and I want you to know it if you don't do that I'm going to think you're not a very reliable person two days time why haven't you murdered the person you said you would murder uh, so um, <laughs> we've got to level with one another we've got to be straight from the shoulder and if we say too much or if we say a little more than what we should have said then we've got to back up later and it can be embarrassing and that's why when we speak we've got to be accurate you see if any man speaks let him speak as it were the as the words of God and then we need to make a habit of studying to practice whatever things are true honest lovely and of good report the more that you try to be honest and make a study of honesty 
the more that you study and appreciate beautiful things and uh, learn to appreciate beautiful things uh, and the more that you study accurate reports and begin to develop a taste for hearing accurate reports as this, these techniques develop in you and in me you and I will become uh, more easily able to keep this commandment now last what are the sins which are forbidden in the ninth commandment well all prejudicing of the truth and of the good name of our neighbors as well as of our own good name and that means that if you happen to be an A-grade student in mathematics, if someone says, I hear that you're quite good in mathematics, you don't say in false pride, oh, I wouldn't say that, I'm not really good at all. You are quite good. You're more than quite good. You're an A student in mathematics. Don't let this false humility make you give a reply that's not true. You can say, well, by God's grace, yes, I do have a little ability there. Um, on the other hand, don't turn around and say, oh, yeah, look at me, I'm the greatest. Uh, because that's for other people to say, and not for you to assess. And so then, you see, <clears throat> we need uh, to beware of prejudicing the truth, even by thinking too lowly of ourselves, especially in public judicature. Of course, friends may goof around privately about this, but uh, particularly when you get public and go to courts and so forth, uh, you need to be meticulously accurate about what you say. Obviously, f the giving of false evidence uh, is prohibited in terms of this commandment. Um, perjuring ourselves in court procuring false witnesses as the Jewish council procured against Jesus in order to get him crucified um, overbearing the truth that means telling the truth but elaborating to the truth and dramatizing the truth so that um, because 90% of what we are saying can be established by the listener to be true he automatically also assumes that the other 10% that is not in a position to know whether that's true too or not is true too and as a result of your total testimony the person, let us say, against whom you are testifying gets a heavier sentence in the courtroom than he should have gotten because you as a witness have over-dramatized. What about passing unjust sentence? There are some people who really make the decision to pass a sentence against a person before they've heard all of the evidence. There are other people who, having heard all of the evidence and who correctly pass negative sentence against a person, pass an unjust sentence. The class example here, of course, is outlined by Victor Hugo in his classic Les Miserables, where you remember that uh, Jean Valjean, uh, the galley slave, who became a galley slave later, the poor man, I should say, uh, was sentenced to five years in jail because he stole one loaf of bread for the purpose of feeding the starving children of his, uh, of his brother. And finally, that turned altogether into a 19-year sentence, you may recall, 19 years for stealing one 
loaf of bread. So we must be careful uh, to that the punishment fits the crime, as Gilbert and Sullivan said in one of their operas. The punishment fits the crime. That we do not put outrageous punishments against relatively minor crimes, pass unjust sentence. And then, of course, there's the matter of calling evil good and calling good evil. And we're living in a stage of the degeneration of our Western civilization, I fear, when there are many that call evil good, many that call pornography, uh, homosexuality, um, a certain amount of theft uh, uh, amongst teenagers as good, it's a means of their expression, it's a phase of their growth or whatever. That's calling evil good. Or there are those who call good evil. Good is what God says is good. It is good to keep the Sabbath day. It is good for uh, political governments to pass laws to punish those who openly desecrate the Sabbath publicly. And yet, I am sure that you would agree with me that uh, in a society where many of its citizens are not Christians, that uh, many of those non-Christians would denounce such a law as an evil law were it to be enacted. And that, of course, would be calling good evil. Two, the rewarding of the wicked according to the work of the righteous. If someone has done that which is wicked, he should be punished. And we should not say, ah, oh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, we'll let the wicked off the hook. I ran into this in a Christian school several years ago when one or two of the children had done something evil in the class. It couldn't be established by the teacher who the kids were and she decided to punish the whole class. And uh, I made life very difficult for that teacher in the school. I went first to her and she got very uppity and I said, you will not punish my child unless you are sure that my child is guilty. I said, now are you sure my child is guilty? If so, by all means punish her. No, she says, I don't think your child is guilty. So I'm pretty sure she isn't. She says, but I'm also pretty sure your child knows who the guilty party is. Well, my child denied it. She says, therefore, because none of the kids will own up, I'm going to punish the whole class. I said, indeed you won't. She said, indeed I will. I said, if necessary, I'll have your job. You will not punish my child if you do not believe that my child is, is guilty of that thing. To me, this was a principle. I said, I'm paying good money, a thousand bucks a year, to send my child to a Christian school. I will not have ungodly democratic socialism inflicted on my child by uh, a leftist, half-Christian teacher. I said, I will not have it. That's why my child is not in the public school. I said, now you're going to punish the people that are, that are guilty, if you have the goods on them, but you're not going to punish those that you yourself believe to be innocent. And the teacher still defied me and I went to the principal. The principal slammed into the teacher. Then the teacher came to heal. And later we had the joy of receiving the teacher as our guest in our home uh, over supper. But it wasn't pleasant. But I felt that to me this was a principle. And of course, you see, this is what um, Hitler did in World War II. Uh, if he couldn't find out who it was in a certain Dutch town, Belgian town, who had killed the Nazi guard the previous night, then he just sent people out and gone everybody in the town to death, some of whom might even have been mildly pro-German for all they knew. 
and this, this is clearly a transgression of the ninth commandment and so it's wrong to reward the wicked according to the work of the righteous and to reward the righteous according to the work of the wicked the ninth commandment also <clears throat> condemns forgery very obviously concealing of the truth and unjust silence in a just cause it condemns us holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint by ourselves being made to others and we do nothing because we don't want to get involved right <laughs> or if we speak the truth at an unseasonable time you ever realize that that there are times when you should not speak the truth there's never a time when you should speak an untruth but there are times when you should not speak the truth there are times when you should keep quiet and when that time has gone you then speak the truth later you've got to speak the truth at the right time at the right time that is to say if a lady doctor is performing a very delicate surgical operation and you've just learnt the truth that her husband is committing adultery right now you don't barge into the operating room and she's about to put the knife into the patient and say hey your husband's in the act of adultery you know that's speaking the truth unseasonably even if you really did have a duty to tell that woman that it's not the right time not the right time so maliciously to a wrongful end perverting the truth in a wrongful meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expressions I first went to the United States I used the word radical with the meaning of from the root and I described myself as a radical Christian meaning by that that I'm a Christian that's rooted in the word of God some of my students went round and said what kind of a communist professor has been hired here he's, he himself is admitted in the classroom he's a radical well the idiotic American student didn't know the meaning of the word radical according to the Oxford English Dictionary and for that matter the American Dictionary but because in his hyper-conservative circles the word radical usually meant left wing he assumed and quite falsely that I already then the author of several books against communism and socialism was describing myself as a left wing this sort of thing happens all the time and that's why we've got to listen not just to what people say but we've got to sympathetically think our way under their skin and ask yeah 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 we hear what he's saying that's not the word that he should have used before this audience but we know what he means see what I mean that's very important that's very important speaking the truth when someone else uses a doubtful or an equivocal and ambiguous expression because truth and justice can be prejudiced if we do not listen carefully speaking untruth is obviously prohibited so too lying slandering backbiting detracting tail-bearing whispering scoffing reviling being rash harsh or censuring only some people but not censuring other people for the same transgression or only partially censuring them rather than fully censuring them misconstruing people's intentions or words or actions another person could have the best intention in the world 
But he does something that you don't like and you say, Ah, the so-and-so's just done this to cause trouble again. And he hasn't done it to cause trouble again. He's done it because he really felt that was the thing to do, according to the light that he had now. And we're so quick to misjudge one another's motives. Flattering is wrong. Boasting is wrong. And this I had to say to a very godly minister very recently. Thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others. This particular minister would never speak too highly of himself. Nor too lowly of others. Uh, but I was noticing that he was speaking too meanly of himself. And I said to him, brother... Um, you know the larger catechism of the ninth commandment says it is a sin for us to speak too meanly of ourselves if I tell you that I'm an ignoramus as far as theology is concerned I would be speaking too meanly of myself so we need to speak the truth as we see it or denying the gifts and the graces of God which God has given us if people say, you know, you seem to be very gifted or quite gifted in some area. We shouldn't say, oh, no, no, uh, I'm not gifted at all there. Or someone else seems to be gifted. We shouldn't deny that he's gifted. We should say, yes, by the grace of God, I, I do have some degree of gift there and pray for me that I'll use it wisely. Then we're being truthful. Aggravating smaller faults. Blowing up... Uh, that which is indeed an indiscretion in another individual to make it, it look like the most monstrous thing to make it look like the most monstrous thing and we can do this with other nations too we can detect what is indeed a real weakness in another nation and blow it up to make these people look like absolute monsters while there may be bigger faults in our own nation uh, of a different faults of a different nature uh, which uh, the very people that we are criticizing may be gracious enough not to blow up in our face. And so I think and I believe that we should leave these kind of assessments uh, to the Lord and uh, be very careful, uh, not in exaggerating nor in minimizing these matters which we see. Hiding, excusing, or extenuating sins when called to a free confession. We need to come clean when people lovingly confront us with our weaknesses if we are indeed guilty. There should be no unnecessary discovering of infirmities. Some people go around ferreting out weaknesses in other people. And uh, this attitude of ferreting infirmities or weaknesses should be far from us. Raising false rumors, obviously wrong. Receiving and countenancing evil reports. Don't easily lend your ear to an easy report. Stuffing our ears against a just offense. I don't want to hear it. I've had enough of you. You've given me nothing but trouble since I ever knew you three years ago. Don't give me your explanation. Don't want to hear it stopping our ears against a just defense the person wants to explain to us why they did what they did that we've heard about that we don't like what we heard evil suspicion envying or grieving at the deserved credit of anybody 
endeavoring or desiring to impair, rejoicing in the disgrace or the infamy of others. Oh, it's finally happened. I've been telling that person for three years that if they wouldn't quit, they would come to grief. I'm so pleased they have come to grief now. That's shown what an accurate prophet I am. And I told them it would happen. It's vindicated me. I have insight into future events. He didn't want to believe me. Now he can see it for himself. We should be grieved when other brothers end up in a disgrace which we began to foresee would happen if they didn't repent, and they didn't. We should not rejoice in what happens. It should sadden us. What about scornful contempt of people? What about overfond admiration of people and inability to see weaknesses in people, making idols out of people? Um, you often find this in, in countries that elevate some of their citizens to a patriot. And uh, patriots, of course, have cracks in them, like everybody else. But I've found all over the world <laughs> a tendency in all nations not to want to believe that there are any flaws in their patriots. And, of course, this is, is wrong and it's unbalanced. Breach of lawful promises, including the promise of engagement. Engaged to someone, you've contracted to marry that person. And to break that contract, unless you can demonstrate they've broken it first, of course, is, uh, is also a breach of the Ninth Commandment. Neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves, or not hindering what we can in others, such as the procuring of an evil name. At this point, then, we'll entertain a few questions and then take a break. Um, the Bible contains some situations where false witness was given so that a greater commandment might not be broken, as in the case of uh, the Hebrew midwives, telling Pharaoh that uh, the women were giving birth before she could get to them, and secondly, Rahab, Rahab the heart, and other occasions like Abraham and um, Yes, if the fall had never taken place, those kind of situations could never have arisen. We are living in a fallen world where, although the principles of God's word are black and white, the situation in which we are to apply those black and white principles are often so complicated that we, Christians though we may be only having a partial insight into all that should be done in a particular situation do not always do the right thing or do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right reason or partially the wrong thing for the right reason or partially the right thing for the wrong reason etc. But if we have to make a split second decision um We make that decision on the basis not just of one consideration, but of our then understanding of the total situation. So that if you uh, are Corrie ten Boom 
in World War II and you've got some Jews hidden upstairs in the attic <laughs> and uh, some Nazi officers come and bang on your door and they say have you any Jews in this house? Now what do you do? Well some people would say sure come and look and um, then pray like mad and hope that they wouldn't find any Jews or others would say come inside and take a look round you're free to search anywhere and then pray that they wouldn't discover any others have suggested the right answer to that question in that situation is no there are no Jews in this house and then for the person to say to themselves secretly you have no business to ask me that question as far as you're concerned there certainly aren't any Jews in this house because I think I know only too well what you're going to do with them if you get them others would suggest the right answer is sure there are and what about it yet others would say the right answer is Jews in this house <laughs> you must be joking the house is full of Jews can't you see them coming now the question is which of these answers is pleasing to the Lord in that complicated situation and it is a complicated situation isn't it well first of all when you took the Jews into your house you knew it could come to that and you may not have known then when you made the decision to take the Jews into your house what you would do if it did come to that and now it has and you may have said well Lord the Bible says don't worry now about what you say then when you drag them in front of governors because at that time the Lord will himself put the right words into your mouth I think that we need to realize that although we must speak the truth at all times it's the whole truth that we must speak and not part of the truth and it's not the whole truth sure we have Jews in this house the whole truth is we have Jews in this house but we have weighed up the risk we do not believe that you have right to take the Jews from this house we do not believe that you should be concerned as to whether there are Jews in this house and other things too that would be the whole truth now the question is is the situation there speaking the truth out of season remember we read about that are you going to have half an hour to sit down with that German officer and to explain to him all of the aspects of the truth as you then see it no he wants an answer yes or no now what is he really asking you when he comes with that question what he's really asking is hand over those Jews we're going to kill them you see and now the question is how are you to parry that even if you say to him yes we do have Jews in this house there are three of them in number they're up in the attic they're behind that panel and so in the name of God leave them alone even if we say that giving as total and accurate account of the situation as we have time to at that moment I think we need to realize that we who say that are still sinners 
so that that which we have said to the German officer, if that's what we say, is still tainted with some degree of sin, even though we've tried our best not to. What I'm saying is whatever answer you give to that person will have some element of sinful taint in it. Now I've got a difference of opinion on my assessment of the sinfulness in each of those answers than have some men whom I highly appreciate and am quite closely associated with. They would say, you say to the Jew, no, there are, they say to the Nazi, no, there are no Jews in this home. And then they further say that having said that, you have not in any way sinned against Almighty God in giving that answer. I disagree. As I see it and as John Murray sees it, if you say that, and frankly I think this is what I would say, but if you say that, you must admit that what you said contains some element of sin. And what I would do after that, and hopefully having gotten rid of the Germans, I would say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me for having said something that was not altogether truthful. But you know, Lord, I did it for the sake of preventing myself being implicated, or even the Nazi being implicated, in the much greater sin which would probably have followed had I said, sure, come inside, they're up there in the attic. So it's not difficult for me to say that it's sinful to lie. I would say the midwives sinned. Rahab sinned. But I would certainly agree she would have sinned far more if in that split second she had taken the ants, the, 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 if they, if they um, uh, had killed the little babies, if uh, she had handed over the Hebrew spies. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, Everything we do we sin in. Chosen Jews must not use wool that's mixed with linen. So if you realize that everything you do you sin in, even when you're preaching a sermon, uh, although of course the degree of sin would hopefully be very minimal in the way in which you deliver it, the lack of totally complete preparation or whatever, um, you've got to determine as best you can what course of action in that very difficult situation will bring the greatest amount of glory to your heavenly father and that you've got to do and it's this way when people get divorced and it's this way when they have to make a thousand and one other decisions which have factors in them that are difficult to balance out alright this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 